The following is an encore presentation of The Bridge with Peter Mansbridge, first aired on May 17th. And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. You are just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge. Ukraine can win this war. Really? And is that the right thing to say right now? Peter Mansbridge here. Welcome to Tuesday. Before we get into the Ukraine story for this week with our commentary, regular weekly commentary from Brian Stewart, first a couple of words about yesterday's program, our program that was dealing with hate and what one one person can do about it. A lot of reaction to that program, not surprisingly. If you have something you'd like to say, if you haven't listened to it yet, I recommend you listen to it. But you can write the Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com, the Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. Uh, one point, though, that I want to make near the end of that broadcast, after the feature interview, um, I referred to a study that had been done with students in American and Canadian schools. And one of the results from it was was shocking, really. It suggested that almost a third, I think it was about 31% was the claim, of students really didn't know anything about the Holocaust. Well, that sounded surprising at the time. And not only was it surprising, it turns out it was wrong. Um, the survey company involved has now suggested that their question was unclear, that students were confused by the question, and their methodology in putting the number together was questionable. As a result, um, they have basically withdrawn that number now. I think it's important to uh, mention that. It's important to recognize that while the number, it's hard to go by anything in that survey after those kind of admissions, but the number is clearly much lower than that. However, it's still a number, whatever it is. And the whole point of yesterday's program was that, and it seems that uh, many schools, many teachers, many organizations agree with this, that Continuing education, and in some cases a lot more education, needs to be done with young people about the histories of hate. And obviously the Holocaust is one of those. So I just wanted to uh, make that point of clarification on something that I introduced late in that broadcast yesterday. All right. Uh, the Ukraine war now is almost at the three-month mark. It was February 23rd, 24th, that night, when the Russians began their invasion of Ukraine. So, you know, we're, we're a week away, or a little more than a week away from the official kind of th- three-month anniversary. And to say this has not gone Russia's way is an understatement, because it certainly hasn't. But having said that, what should be said? And that becomes the question around our commentary this week from our friend Brian Stewart, great foreign correspondent for the CBC, NBC, covered 
many a conflict, many wars in different parts of the world. And Brian is totally on top of the Ukraine story. He's, uh, <laughs> he, he is researching this on a daily and nightly basis, listening to everything that's being said, reading everything that's being written, uh, and is, as I said, fully up to speed on this story. And therefore, once a week, we have a chat with Brian to see what's on his mind about this story and what's happening on it. So enough from me. Let's get to Brian Stewart. So, Brian, we've uh, we've reached an interesting point in this conflict because of some of the things that are being said by some of the key players who are close to the action. And one of them is the uh, Secretary General of the of NATO, and that's uh, Jens Stoltenberg. He, you know, he had a very simple thing uh, that he said just in the last couple of days, but it's got a lot of people wondering why he would say this. He said, Ukraine could win this war. Now, this is from the same side of, uh, of those who worried so much that Ukraine was going to lose it in a couple of days. They've hung on for a couple of months, and the war seems to be turning in certain uh, ways in their favor. But saying it... Ukraine could win this war has raised eyebrows. Explain that. It certainly has. We've entered a sort of phase two of the war now, which is very much changing from as the Russians retreat from the north and the, the battle becomes more along uh, the, the basically entirely on the north and northeast front and southern fronts. Uh, there has become a growing sense that the Ukraine no longer feels that it's just fighting for its life and eventually would be able to battle the R- Russians to a point where they'd have to negotiate a way out and they'd leave with very few gains, if you know, barely any gains, but enough to declare a victory. Now it appears that more and more uh, NATO capitals are picking up sense from the Ukrainians that they actually do believe they can win this war. And that means not leaving any face-saving moves for, uh, for Putin at all, not saving, saving uh, an exit ramp that the Russians could gracefully get off while declaring a form of victory. But the Ukrainians are becoming convinced the more they get armaments pouring in from the West and huge financial benefits such as the United States promise of $40 billion in further aid now, that the Ukrainians are starting to feel, no, we can we can do more than just defend ourselves now. The Russians are so weak. They've shown themselves so inept. We can take this. We can really win this. We can push the Russians back uh, to before the where they were, but February the 23rd, before the invasion of the 24th, right to their own borders. We might even be able to take back, yes, why not take back the, the Crimea as well? Um, they reacted very strongly, for instance, when, when Macron of France came out last week and said, you know, the object here must not be to humiliate the Russians. Uh, we must not go for vengeance. And instead of saying, yes, well, we hear you, the Ukrainians said, we object to this kind of talk. I mean, you're wanting us to get a peace agreement by ceding some of our territory to Russia. That is not fair, and that's not going to be done. We're in this to win, and we're in this to take back all of our territory, the, the Crimea included, was clearly indicated here. So this is setting a lot of talk going in Western capitals that 
You know, sometimes in war, early success can lead to some strategic errors or some strategic overestimation of one's ability. And certainly in military circles, there's some real worry that perhaps Ukraine is starting to uh, think that uh, because the Russians blew the first phase when they were on the attack, they'll also uh, really blow the second phase when they're much more on the defense. Well, attacking is much harder harder in war than the defensive. And the Russian units, bad as many of them are, some aren't so bad, some are fairly good. Uh, on the defensive, Russia may be able to uh, dig in and defend itself much better. Uh, so if the if the Ukrainians are thinking of going for victory, it means a, a much longer war for, for starters. And in fact, Ukrainian officials have already talked about the war extending right up till the end of this year, which is many, many more months than the Western capitals were hoping for uh, and planning for. And it also opens the possibility that Russia, unable to even face the fact of a loss, will, will have other options to turn to. One will be escalation and the other will be a longer, wider war than anybody can now foresee. So it's causing some real concern. You're starting to see editorial comment beginning in Western media saying, wait a minute, this is becoming a kind of proxy war. You and I talked about that last week. The danger of the more we get involved in not only arming the Ukrainians, which uh, has united support virtually for that, uh, but uh, using intelligence to pinpoint Russian targets, take out Russian generals, sink the Russian flagship, the Moskva, things like that, that's clearly seen in Russia as a proxy war. And they would respond to the proxy war by doing one of several several options you would have on their table to, to choose from. Let me, um, let me back you up for a little bit in terms of, I'm still trying to get my head around why the NATO forces, uh, why anybody within the NATO group would be hesitant about this option of winning the war. I mean, they have, as you said, they've armed the Ukrainians uh, to the teeth, it appears. They have backed it up with huge amounts of money. Um, and, and you would uh, assume that at a certain point there, those that combination of those two things is going to mean more than just defense. It is the option of offense. So why wouldn't NATO want Ukraine to win the war outright? I think the short answer to that is the road to victory in war is always laced with minefields of real danger. And the real dangers in this war uh, are striking. I should say that uh, the NATO capitals, including France, uh, Paris, um, do want to see the Russians, in fact, have their fingers badly singed. They do want to see them beaten back to at least the, where they were uh, when the invasion began, with maybe some seeding of small territory uh, in the south. But to go for all of victory means you really are then confronting Russia with the, the basic choice. Are you prepared to take an all-out defeat? Or are you, in fact, planning to do something to make that not happen? What worries NATO is, well, yes, everybody would welcome in NATO the Russians being badly battered and indeed humiliated, whatever France says. They'd like to see you, Russia humiliated enough that it learns a lesson and doesn't try this again. 
This is what NATO really wanted to, to drive home in the support of Ukraine, that we don't want this to ever happen to another country. So make it as painful as possible to Russia. But if Ukraine sees victories, and who would blame them for doing that? Uh, it would be absolutely natural for the Ukrainians to say, after all our losses on the battlefield, after so much physical destruction in this country, uh, after all we've had to go through, why would we settle for anything less than victory? We can certainly understand that. But what does Russia do if faced with this? Is the Kremlin likely to say, okay, guys, we pretty well blew it. We lost. We're pulling our military out. We're being humiliated. You can pretty well be the laughing stock of the world for the next 20, 30 years. Or is it going to do one of several things? The first fear, of course, is that they might escalate to the use of tactical nuclear weapons, maybe even a, just a, a demonstration of a tactical nuclear explosion going off in the Black Sea, say, for instance, or something more serious, or the use of chemical weapons, which would be absolutely dire, uh, but they, uh, they might move to that. Or... Putin might simply say, I don't have to win to this year. I don't have to make a decision this year. We'll settle down into a long drawn out stalemate. It's, it's a artillery war now. We've got far superior artillery to the uh, Ukrainians. Our air force is coming back into its own and starting to fly more missions. Uh, we've got lots of, of armaments that we can dig in around and hold our our, our place there, and we can extend this war in a painful way to the Ukraine that it hasn't seen yet. Even the shelling of Kiev, even the shelling of the other cities, wasn't the total uh, kind of shelling and rocketry and cruise missile uh, offensives that we can bring to bear on where? Odessa. Here we turn to the, I call it the Odessa file, if you want. But the Odessa is the one open port of Ukraine. Ukraine depends on it absolutely for its exports and future. It, uh, the Russians could probably, without too much effort, uh, concentrate their fire on Odessa and essentially reduce it to rubble uh, through the waters around it with mines and basically close down the Black Sea to Ukraine. And that loss of that would be of enormous damage to Ukraine beyond anything even imagined in the war so far. It would lose its, most of its ability to export its foodstuffs, for instance, desperately needed by the world. So therefore, the, the Western military are saying to themselves, uh, you know, we don't want a long war. We don't want an escalation in this war. We, we were thinking there would be some form of diplomatic settlement of this war, and that means something less than a full Ukrainian victory. So really, it's, it's a torn line. It's it face a real dilemma here. Yes, victory sounds nice, but what comes with victory? Is it more pain, more escalation, and a lot more danger than we've ever counted on? That's the problem. You know, I, I love the fact that you brought back the Odessa file. Uh, you and I are old enough to remember, of course, this was a very uh, popular kind of 60s Cold War movie uh, called The Odessa File that's actually been made now into a new uh, television series um, uh, that uh, is out, I think it's in, in Britain. Uh, but it's, uh, but it, you know, it was a huge, you know, first of all, book and then movie uh, was very popular. Anyway, let, let me just ask one last question. Um, 
the whole issue of uh, Finland and Sweden joining NATO uh, has been dominant over the last few days, and we kind of touched upon it a little bit last week. Uh, but Putin has said to Finland, you better not do this. You're biting off more than you can chew, and we will retaliate if you do this. Now, is that a Putin bluff? Because, you know, that would be opening up a real two-front conflict for him if he's suddenly started moving uh, men and machinery to the Finland border, which is a, a long border. What is it? About 600 miles long, I think, uh, between uh, Russia and Finland. Uh, but are we? Uh, is that a bluff, or is that something we should be uh, being very uh, weary of, leery of? I think, I think it's certainly a military bluff. I think he may have other forms of retaliation. But the reality is, you know, the West is starting to see more and more bluff from uh, Putin. He was thought on May the 9th that he'd come down with some news of escalation of the war. It didn't happen. He looked very tired. Uh, in fact, just I think today or late last night, he uh, said on an, in an interview that uh, Finland and Sweden joining NATO would not necessarily be a threat to Russia. So a change already there. Uh, he has no military ability, uh, really to take on uh, Sweden and Finland, which are uh, have significant forces themselves. But also NATO is now sending out signals that even when they're, before they become members of NATO, NATO would move to defend Finland and Sweden, give it a kind of, um, uh, I don't know, pact. That you know, in desperation, you can now call on us. So I think they sense it's a, it's a bluff, and I think both Sweden and Finland would import all their intelligence abilities with the help of allies, and they're trying to figure out what the Russians are likely to do. And they seem pretty confident that they can get away with this without any really very severe um, uh, retaliation by Russia's uh, hand. And we'll have to see whether they call that right or not. You know, if there is retaliation, it might come more at sea. That would be an area we rarely talk about. We talk about the northern flank of NATO as the countries. But what about the sea beyond the countries where we have, you know, with Canada has, has ships in those waters, other NATO countries have ships in those waters. Russia's navy is largely unused uh, and not very effectively used, as we know. But it could try something like uh, blockades or, or, or just real scare tactics in the northern waters that would, would raise the temperature a lot. Uh, all this comes at a time when, once again, the health of uh, Putin is, uh, has been um, you know, talked about and reported on, and there was some stuff in the last few days that was suggesting that he's being treated for, for a kind of uh, blood cancer, um, the kind that ends up giving a patient those kind of chipmunk cheeks that one gets, right. and that's, you know, clearly Putin seems to have that uh, in terms of the, you know, the images of his face uh, reflect that, have reflected that in the past few months, very different than the way he looked a year ago. Um, but, uh, you know, his health is, has been a question mark since the beginning of this. Um, and Indeed, what, I've, what I've noticed about him is he, he, when you see him, say, live on May 9th, uh, giving the speech, which was, I thought, very low-key, he doesn't have that kind of coiled energy spring look to him that he used to have, you know, when he liked to show off bare-chested, you know, hunting and the rest of it. He actually looks quite tired 
quite frequently in the photo ops now. There's a kind of almost sadness coming over his face. I don't know. I won't read any more into that other than the fact that he's probably pretty weary after, you know, being pretty much war since February, the, the night of February the 23rd, 24th. Uh, no doubt he's, he's tired. No doubt he's gloomy. But he certainly doesn't look the old Putin of just a couple of years ago, I find. Well, given the way the the war has gone for him so far, I don't imagine he's sleeping all that well. And uh, any rustle outside the door probably has him uh, up pretty quick. I mean, it's uh, you know, there's so many stories involved in the you know around. He keeps seeing an ever more energetic Zelensky up there, you know, touring the world. Now doing a tour of U.S. universities, virtual tour to get university students behind you to the war. It's just remarkable what he's seen as his enemy and just that must be very dispiriting for him. The book on Zelensky when this is all over is going to be quite the book because, uh, you know, a guy who was kind of looked at as, well, you know, he was an actor, he was a comedian, really... How's he going to be able to deal with this? Uh, no, not very well was the assumption on the part of many. And now he's become this kind of textbook how to handle a crisis leader. It's, it's remarkable, the story. I was very pleased to see a, a note came from an old uh, Eastern European hero that we would remember from our reporting days, Lech Wałęsa. You know, and in ways he reminds me at times of Lech Wałęsa who was an electrician working on the docks in, in Poland when he rose to end the solidarity movement. And he, he had some of that ability to turn the governments of the world in his favor and, and get to the enormous attention. So he has a sort of Lech Wałęsa uh, air to him as well, which is good, good background. Yeah. Gdansk is where uh, Wałęsa was from. And I, I can, I remember... I remember the time when you when you got there. You you know you got to Gdansk or somewhere where you where you actually uh, met with him or interviewed him or covered him or in a scrum with him or something. But back there, Indeed, in the he had just come out of being held prisoner, and all of a sudden he was going to be killed any day. He'd be run over by a truck mysteriously, or the KGB, as it then was, would find one of its innovative ways to get rid of him. And he was coming out of a, a room, and there was about five or six of us in the media surrounding him. And one of the American reporters shouted out, are you frightened? And he looked at him and said, I am afraid of nothing. I am afraid only of God and nothing else. And he looked to me the most indestructible human being I ever <laughs> run into. You know, just absolute strength to the hills. I, I saw him about 20 years later uh, in 2002. We shared a stairwell going in opposite directions at the stadium in Salt Lake City for the 2002 Olympics because he was one of the, you know, six or eight um, uh, flag holders. You know how they sort of parade the flag, the Olympic flag in, and they have, you know, eight celebrities. Uh, they could be from sports, the politics, or wherever in terms of uh, different places in the world. And he was one of them on that occasion. And uh, this was before, about an hour before the uh, ceremony took place. And uh, he was heading down, and I was heading up the stairwell. And it was like, wow. Like for once, uh, you know, like amazing. I'll throw, I'll throw in one more story you can snip out. But I, a couple of years later, when he was uh, sort of, I think he, was, he may have been already president, 
uh, but I was sitting down with them. Um, uh, I sit down interview with them, and the crew. Uh, he was a former electrician, of course, a union boss electrician, and a no nonsense electrician. And the crew started running into electricity problems. The plugs weren't working or something. And you see this guy looking at them. Saying, Have you tried the WKZ? Have you tried that plug over there? You idiot! He's almost calling them out. And I was saying, Oh my God! Don't mess up at least the electricity with this guy. <laughs> I wonder what his hourly rate was. <laughs> okay, Brian, we're going to leave it at that for uh, for this week. Um, uh, great, okay. uh, uh, great commentary and interesting uh, thoughts for us to keep in mind. Thanks again. Thank you. Brian Stewart, always great to talk to Brian and uh, nice to, to reflect on some of the uh, uh, the casual encounters that uh, a person like Brian has had over the years in terms of his reporting career and that story with Lech Wawenza giving the crew <laughs> advice on how to handle an electrical problem uh, is pretty good. Uh, all right, we're going to take a quick pause and then a mini version of our old series of potpourri because I've got some great little stories to tell you and they will come right after this. And welcome back. Peter Mansbridge here in Stratford, Ontario. You're listening to The Bridge on Sirius XM, Channel 167, Canada Talks, or on your favorite podcast platform and wherever you're listening from. Uh, We're glad you're with us today. Um, okay, a couple of stories before we leave for uh, this day. That, uh, you know, I have this pile of stories I always have. It's, you know, sometimes in the business we call it filler. We need a couple of extra moments. And lately I haven't had room for filler because we've just been, you know, chock-a-block with uh, material. But uh, today, time for a couple. Um, I like this one. You know, there's so much talk about drones, and we usually talk about drones in terms of their military value, of which there's no doubt there is some. They're controversial um, as a military asset, but nevertheless, they do exist. But they also exist for a lot more than that, and and more than just, you know, uh, for uh, hobbyists who use drones in, in certain areas where you're allowed to use drones. But they're being used uh, on a commercial basis as well. And the latest to join the, uh, the throng is the Royal Mail in the United Kingdom. They're building a fleet of 500 drones to carry mail to uh, remote communities in the UK, including the Isles of Scilly and the Hebrides. So let's have a look at how they're doing that. Uh, the Postal Service, which has already conducted successful trials over Scotland and Cornwall, will create more than 50 new postal drone routes over the next three years as part of a new partnership with the London company Wind Racers. Drones, or UAVs as they're called, and you know what UAVs stand for? I'm waiting. You're not telling me. Here it is. A UAV is an uncrewed aerial vehicle. There you go, right? Did you know that already? I'm sure some of you did. But like me, maybe a lot of you didn't. Anyway, they can help reduce carbon emissions and improve the reliability of island mail services, so says the Royal Mail. 
They offer an alternative to currently used delivery methods that can be affected by bad weather, ferries, conventional aircraft, and land-based deliveries. They can also take off from any flat surface, sand, grass, tarmac, providing it's long enough. Um, this is from an article, by the way, in the Daily Mail in London. Drones are usually thought of as small devices. You know, you see them, they're kind of like handheld. Well, not these ones the Royal Mail has. They have a hefty wingspan of over 30 feet, 10 meters. So these aren't small. They can carry up to 100 kilograms of mail, all shapes and sizes, for two daily return flights between the islands. After being picked up from the landing sites, letters and parcels are then delivered by the local postie in his or her van, so human workers aren't being completely replaced quite yet. The plans in the future have smaller drones taking the mail from the drop-off point right to your postal code. Drop it on your doorstep. That's the plan. Now, these are much like a small plane. You see the pictures of them. They, they look like a little plane, except they don't have a pilot on board, and they fly a programmed route autonomously based on inputted postcode. The drones are monitored along the way to ensure they are completely safe. There are safety pilots at either end of the route, too, who are able to take control of the drone if needed. And that's, you know, take control of it uh, by computer. They're less likely to be affected by bad weather, such as fog and heavy rain, than conventional aircraft. There's no need for the pilot to be able to see where they're going, which means they can fly in fog. And finally... Delivery firms are pioneering a host of new technologies to tackle the last mile of deliveries. It's hoped that vehicles, the vehicles can cut the inefficiencies and hence costs of the final stage of delivery in which packages are taken from a central hub right to your door. I'm not sure I'd need that last part. You know, I'm, as you know, many of you know, I, we have a little, uh, a little place in Scotland and Archie, the postie, is a really important part of that story and the the fact that we love the place so much. And, you know, Archie can't be replaced. He certainly can't be replaced by a little piece of machinery. That would take away some of the character of the place, I think. All right, here's second second piece of potpourri. <laughs> Sounds like they, they talked to me on this one. The headline in the uh, magazine called Study Finds, aches, anxiety, exhaustion. Adults feel good just 47% of the time, says this study. Feeling good is becoming an increasingly rare commodity these days, according to a new survey in a poll of 2,000 people this one's in the UK as well. It turns out adults truly feel good, both mentally and physically, less than half of the time, 47%. Six in 10 say they rarely feel on top of their game physically. Another 61% have simply accepted that aches and pains are part of their daily life. Why? Top answers include not exercising enough, a poor diet, and not having enough hours in a day. 
All in all, only 63% of respondents say they would consider themselves healthy. On a related note, 23% have recently put themselves on a diet, 41% started going to bed earlier, and another 41% are trying to drink more water. You know, I keep being told, drink more water. Drink Whenever you feel any kind of urge or anything, drink water. I love water. I love cold water, but I have a hard time drinking it all the time. 40% have started exercising more. 27% are taking more vitamins and supplements. One in 10 people have even recently booked themselves a spa day. Haven't done that. Unfortunately, over 4 in 10 believe it's just too expensive to indulge in these activities on a regular basis. Another 40% say it takes too much time. Do you hear yourself in any of those stats? Okay, here's the last one. And uh, I don't know. I was attracted to this story. It's also from a British newspaper, The Mirror. I don't know how you're going to feel about this. Here's the headline. Calling a man bald is considered sexual harassment. That's what a tribunal has ruled. Comes in a case between a veteran electrician and his employers. Tony Finn, who's 64 years old, just a young guy, claimed he'd been a victim of sexual harassment when his colleague used the adjective bald to describe him. Well, a man being called bald is sexual harassment. An employment tribunal has ruled. The panel sitting at Sheffield agreed and compared it to when someone mentions a woman's breasts. Now, the ruling was made by a panel, an employment panel of three men. And guess what? All three of them were bald. Finn was fired in May of last year in Yorkshire for a company he'd worked for for 24 years and had an unblemished record. Finn told the tribunal when he was continually described this way, he was fearful of violence. His colleagues denied any violent intentions. tribunal heard that Finn wrote a statement with his police officer's son on official police paper when this was handed to his bosses at the firm, which makes wooden cask closures for the brewing industry. They accused him of trying to intimidate them, and they fired him on the spot. The tribunal said of the bald comment, it was a violation of the claimant's dignity. It created an intimidating environment for him, and it related to the claimant's sex. Finn's in line for compensation. After winning claims of unfair dismissal, wrongful dismissal, and being subjected to sex harassment. Well, there you go. Um, I don't mind being called bald. It's never bothered me. Well, it bothered me at the beginning, the first time somebody said, Peter, you're going bald, I was sort of horrified. You know, I was like, 
20-something, and uh, I kind of laughed it off. I was in the office and uh, until I got home, and then I was, you know, in contorted positions with a mirror trying to figure out where I was going bald. And then I realized, in fact, yes, I was. So it took a while to go get used to. But hey, bald is beautiful. Isn't that what they say? The other thing I should mention, because I know some of you are already saying, Peter, why do you say harassment, not harassment? Well, the bottom line is both are acceptable. If you go to the appropriate dictionaries. You know, you, we don't say embarrassment, we say embarrassment. So why don't we say harassment? I don't know, I'm, I, I'm a lone fighter on this front. Nobody, everybody else says harassment. I've preferred harassment. All right, on that note, it's time to say goodbye. Uh, this being the Tuesday edition of The Bridge. Tomorrow, Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth. Bruce Anderson will join us. I think he's in Edinburgh tomorrow, so we'll, we'll check in with him. We're going to talk a little bit about a number of subjects, but including Charles and Camilla, who begin a visit to Canada today. And uh, I'm sure things will go well. But I can tell you that the last, uh, the last couple of times Charles has been here, it's been like... Not much to say about the visit, you know, pretty quiet, small crowds, nothing like the Queen, nothing like Will and Kate, probably nothing like Harry and Meghan if they came. But Charles, the future king, the soon-to-be king, one assumes, in the next, certainly within the next decade, Will there be a little buzz around Charles? Should there be? What can he do to create some? Well, we'll talk to Bruce about that. And other things, of course. All right, that's tomorrow on The Bridge. I'm Peter Mansbridge. Thanks so much for listening. It's always good to know you are out there giving us a listen. Take care. We'll see you again and talk to you in 24 hours. You've been listening to an encore presentation of The Bridge with Peter Mansbridge, first aired on May 17th.